Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we talk to one of our favourite Talking Politics guests, the American historian Jill Lepore, about the crazy origins of the crazy tech world we live in. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. We recorded this conversation with Jill Lepore a couple of days ago, on top of everything else that she was dealing with. She also had an eight-week-old puppy, and you may hear a bit of a dog in the background. More explanations of that at the end. Jill, so there's so much in this book that connects to now, um, and some of it is really quite haunting, but maybe we should just start with a bit of scene setting. So the Simulmatics Corporation, just tell us who, who these guys were, and they were mainly guys, weren't they? They were almost all guys. Yeah, all the scientists and the executives were guys. So it was a one of the first what we would call data science companies founded in 1959. So really at the height of the Cold War by a bunch of Madison Avenue types, ad agency guys, behavioral scientists, and what were called at the time computer men, which would come to be called computer scientists. So doing the kind of analytical work, collecting data, people's personal data, coming up with mathematical models for their behavior and making predictions about it and then selling that as a service. That was their business model. They got their big break in the 1960 presidential election and it is advertising. So it made me, first of all, it made me think of Mad Men. I'm sure a lot of people who read this book will think of Mad Men. And and there is an early scene in Mad Men where the ad agency that Don Draper works for is offered the Richard Nixon account for that election. Mm -hmm. And, And there is this sort of line and it does have echoes for today and we'll come on to this because the weird thing about Facebook and the other most powerful corporations in the history of the world is they're still basically in the ad business. Where is the line in this between advertising and something new? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I I think that's becoming blurred. And from the start, then once that blurring happens, it's, it's also ethically blurred. I mean, remember even, you know, to go back a little bit further, mass advertising of the kind of Edward Bernays sort of World War II era really, you know, began as defending big businesses that were accused of rapacious behavior by muckraking journalists, defending them from those accusations, right? Like advertising was invented to defend Standard Oil from, you know, it's or, or munitions manufacturers in the First World War from profiteering, from war profiteering. It becomes something else. It becomes trying to get people to switch brands, you know, kind of the, in, as kind of modern consumer society emerges. So when you get to the early 1950s in the U.S., there's this massive amount of consumer goods production because all the wartime mobilization, all those factories that were building tanks and making bullets and uniforms for the allies during the Second World War, they want to keep making stuff. So they're making, you know, Barbie dolls and Monopoly games and ping pong tables and washing machines. And now they have to convince people to buy them stuff that no one really needs. 
what actually means. And so they turn to this, these tools of mass advertising, which have become more and more sophisticated because it's a kind of an uphill battle to convince somebody you really need a hula hoop, right? Then this kind of blurring happens where some of these ad agencies begin working for the Republican Party because ad agencies work for big businesses and the Republican Party is the party of big business. So it's kind of a natural for Republican candidates who often were businessmen to say, I wonder if I could get your advice about how to convince voters to vote for me and not the other guy. Uh, So Republicans had a real corner on using the tools of mass advertising and in the founding of the field of, of political advertising. And Democrats were always paying catch up because Democrats were the party of labor. The, the big break that the Simul Maddox Corporation got was, I think it was Harper's, wasn't it, who wrote a piece after Kennedy beat Nixon and Kennedy only just beat Nixon. So you know, whoever was responsible for the finest of fine margins could claim the victory, arguing that this thing, which was something other than in the way it was reported than conventional political advertising, that it had somehow tapped into something in the way that the voters think, persuading Kennedy to talk up some of the Catholicism that was thought to maybe be a problem for him to just sort of tweak his message, that piece gave this company a big boost. Right. So, you know, it was founded by an ad agency guy, this guy, Edward Greenfield, who had worked for Democratic political campaigns in the 1950s and been really frustrated at how they couldn't fight against the Republican campaigns that had all this much bigger ad money and were willing to do a lot more television advertising. Greenfield was a pretty brainy guy. He was an intellectually ambitious guy. And he connected with a bunch of behavioral scientists who were working with really early mainframe computers. And one of the big uses of mainframe computers was simulation. So flight simulation in the 1950s or the real-time computer simulation of a nuclear attack that the U.S. Department of Defense used. He met some scientists who said, we could use simulation to simulate human behavior. And if you were going to try to simulate human behavior, well, what would be a really good behavior to try to simulate? It would have to be something you had a lot of data about. Well, what do we have a lot of data? We have voting data, right? Because we have census data about people and who they are. And then we have public opinion data. And then we have election returns. So Greenfield uh, and these guys founded the Simulmatics Corporation in 1959 in order to sell the idea that they could simulate the election. That is, you not just talk to a candidate and say, polls say you should spend more time in Wisconsin. They could say, our computer simulation of the electorate tells us that if you were to go to Wisconsin and speak forthrightly about your Catholicism, you would win X number of votes, right? So in a way, this is, it's familiar to us now. Like, I can guarantee you that you and I are not getting through the day without having our behavior simulated by a hundred different corporations. You know, as we speak, this is going on because doing that kind of computer simulation of predicting our behavior and then sending us messages because of how we are known to behave is how everything happens to us on the internet or on your, on your, on your phone. But it was really, really new. And they managed to get a contract first with the democratic national committee and then with the Kennedy campaign, to was kind of snake oil, but, you know, promising in a kind of Cambridge Analytica of the Cold War way, we can win the White House back for the Democratic Party if you'll pay us a lot of money. And that snake oil question, it's there right the way through this story. It's You describe a world which is very remote, particularly in its sexual politics, apart from anything else. But some of what's going on is completely familiar. And it seems like a foreshadowing of the world we live in now. And yet, 
there's something profoundly bogus about what they were doing. And you, you talk about this, that the insights when they come, I mean, it's sold as our amazing giant thrumming machine is going to churn out startling pieces of advice and information that you couldn't get any other way. And then the advice and the information comes and it isn't that startling. And there probably are other ways you could get it. Was it, was it for real? Yeah, I mean, it has very much like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like, what is the answer to life, the meaning, and everything? Fucking do. You know, it has this weird self mystification. I mean, it's yeah. hucksterism, right? Yeah. And and you know, that's how advertising works generally. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. I, I, <laughs> they were in the right um, business, as Facebook is today. Yeah, yeah. So you know, what was the actual? I, I guess in the business speak, the deliverable here. You look at it and it's interestingly, you know, the other side of the political spectrum that is expert at this. In the U.S. today, the Trump campaign is incredibly uh, sophisticated with its use of this kind of work, whereas the Biden campaign is not. Same thing was true kind of with Leave and Remain, you know, in 2015 with Brexit. But was it really making a difference? I mean, what the Simulatics people were doing, they were on the, they were liberals and they were trying to convince the Democratic Party to pay attention to black voters in the North. because. Black people couldn't vote in the South because of Jim Crow. And the Democratic Party had taken an incredibly cowardly position on civil rights. And so these liberals wanted to convince the Democratic Party to take a stronger position on civil rights in 1960 by trying to convince them that Black voters could make a difference in the election and that civil rights was an important issue, not only for Black voters, but for non-Black voters as well. And you think about, all right, well, fine, but did you really need a mathematical? It's 1960. The Greensboro, like, sit-ins are happening. You know, the civil rights movement is on TV every night. Is it really such a big mystery what black voters want? Like, did you really have to spend all that money? And also, Kennedy, come on, why did you take a stronger position on civil rights? It's the right thing to do. So there's something really creepy about it. And it also is, you know, from our vantage, we can see it's a bunch of mid-century white liberal men trying to build a machine using what was called then starting in 1956 artificial intelligence in order to understand people of color and women which they just you know were they were themselves mystified by like let's build a big machine because i don't know why my wife is mad at me you know like that's kind of silicon valley do you know what i mean like, actually to me it does seem hauntingly familiar yeah so with the 1960 election and the 2016 election the other thing that you can do if you're in the hucksterism business is a really tight election is very good for you. So with Trump, you know, there was that feeling that whatever it was, 10,000 votes or 20,000 votes in three key states, if you flipped those people with your super duper machine that targeted them individually, you win the election. And something similar with Kennedy, it was so tight that you can then get a tame journalist to kind of write up this extraordinary story that this was the thing that won it. But in an election that tight, a thousand things won it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with, I think, some of the Cambridge Analytica thing, that there's a huge enabling industry of journalism around this to talk up this kind of machinery and to talk up this kind of technology and to oversell it. That's what it felt like reading your book yeah. about the 1960s. Yeah. The journalists That's, are deeply right. complicit in this. Absolutely. Because it's it's a great story. I mean, you know, it's it's gigantic electronic brain runs the election. You know, Kennedy campaign influenced by robot from MIT. That's a great story. You know, it, Stanley Cooper could have written that like that. It, it's it, it's compelling. And it what's kind of fascinating, though, 
journalists loved the story because it was interesting and it was slightly scandalous. And it, it was a way to express a lot of anxiety about automation and homogeneity and some of the, you know, the kind of concerns about the anime in, in mid-century. But they did raise a lot of ethical questions about it, which was not true in the world of politics more broadly. I mean, the other institution that's really making this possible is the business community. If it could work, think how much money we could make. Even if it doesn't really work, think how much money we could make. You know, someone sent me a, um, oh, like a stock offering for a new startup company that he promises it can predict the future of all proposed state and federal legislation using its algorithms. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I guess if I was a fossil fuel company, I might want to, I might want to hire that company to tell me what's going. Well, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, that can't happen. Like, it doesn't happen. And if you could do that, you shouldn't build it because <laughs> there is such a thing as free will and consent to the governed. Like, we're not run, we're not running society. We're not running our governments by computers. So, you know, people have said about, say, Facebook, that 2016 kind of should have been its Manhattan project moment, you know, its Hiroshima moment. Like the way the Nuremberg trials established the conventions of, of bioethics, right? That you couldn't undertake biological research on human subjects anymore without following strict codes. That physicists recoiled in horror at what had been done with their work in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and undertook to establish a set of ethical guidelines about what are what could or could not be done. We have kind of an ongoing debate now about, you know, genomic research, say. But that for social media companies, technological research and directing and manipulating human behavior through data acquisition and the selling of data, that that should have been that moment. 2016 should have been that moment when that everybody had to say, wait, stop, we have to have rules. And it didn't happen. But 1960 could have been that moment, was my point. You know, I did find in the archive some people who said, holy crap, this is completely unethical. <laughs> like This will destroy democracy. If we let this machine be built and if then other people just keep building it and it gets faster and better and faster and better. It, and know, if we build one that American actually politics. works, imagine. Yeah, yeah, imagine. Uh, yeah, we'd make a lot of money. We might win a lot of campaigns, but we'd destroy the country. So that line, you know, think how much money we could make if it works. And think how much money we could make anyway. So the other thing, you know, there's a bit, there's Mad Men in this story, there's Cambridge Analytica in this story. There's a bit of the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes in this too, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, at mm -hmm. some of those moments where it really is, the hucksterism is sort of front and center. And there's that great podcast about Elizabeth Holmes, The Dropout, which has some great inside stories of what, what happened in that company. And for people that know, it was the business that promised with one pinprick of blood to be able to do blood tests in real time in a kind of drugstore, in a department store and get you the results. And it was pure snake oil. And at various points in the Theranos story where the money people were coming in and they knew none of the machinery worked, they just got bigger and shinier machines. They didn't even plug them in. You know, the con was people will just be impressed if the machines have blinking lights. This, is, this isn't 1960. This is you know, the last decade. But it was there in this story too. There's a bit of that kind of, because the machines were really big back then, weren't they? The computers really did have blinking lights mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. hummed. And it had that a bit of that feel to it that people are just so sold on the thought how much money we could make that they're quite easily conned. That's I think what takes that, your breath yeah. away in these it, it It is, an, and right, that's an enduring aspect of the human condition that we're still confronting that. 
there's another explanation for how these companies get away with this stuff for so long and still do. And that is if you hire them, if you're a client and you realize it is snake oil, who are you going to tell? You look like an idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you think about the New York Times. So in 1962, the New York Times hired the Simulmatics Corporation to run its election night data analysis. Newspapers were in a hard place because TV was fun to watch on election night for the first time. Uh, you know, fairly recently, you could you could watch election night returns that because IBM would bring its computers to CBS. This started in 1952, but by, by 1960, everyone was just watching television on election. I was, you know, you get out your popcorn, it's fun, you watch the returns. They're calculated quickly enough because of computers that you can find out who's winning precinct by precinct as the evening goes on. And there are the giant maps of the country. In 1952, when people still had black and white televisions, they had to do black and black and white stripes for Republican and, and Democratic states instead of red and blue. But then they come to call. So newspapers are like, what are we going to do to make people really want to buy the newspaper in the morning. We want to give better information. We can't be quicker with the results because we're not going to put out an, an edition at midnight, but we can put out really interesting analysis in the morning. So they hired the Simomatics Corporation. They bought giant IBM computer. They had to like build a special bay to bring it into the building onto the editorial floor. It took up you know, the entire floor of the New York Times building with this giant bundle of different machines and cords and cables everywhere. And... <laughs> It was a fiasco. The whole night, people just tripping over the cables, reporters trying to run across the room. The Simulmatic scientists did not know how to run the machines because only women knew how to actually run the machines. They could only, you know, do the analysis. And the New York Times canceled the contract going forward and all their internal documents. All right, Jesus, what were we thinking? These people are ridiculous. This is a scam. But then their press release is like, in a first in the history of newspapers, the New York Times company employed the Simulmatics Corporation, the nation's leading data analysis. Like, what are they going to do? They're going to say, like, it was a great, incredible success. No one's going to remember in 64 that the Simulmatics Corporation was supposed to be still working for the New York Times and contracted them. So you kind of see that happen again and again and again. So everybody covers for the company because it's too embarrassing to point out that the company is a fraud. Until you get as with Elizabeth Holmes, finally the Emperor's New Clothes moment. This story takes a darker turn. I mean, this book, what's so great about it is it's really funny and it's really dark. And it's both funny and dark when the US government takes some of these scientists and some of their technology to Vietnam. Because the other thing that you could do potentially is either simulate a war or simulate how you think a whole country, you know, once... People were thinking about war in terms of insurrection and you know, civilian morale and everything else. You could simulate, in theory, not in practice, the whole thing. So just tell us a bit about that bit of the story. Because again, there's that weird mix of some bits of it are quite creepy and compelling and some bits of it are farcical. Yeah, I found it sort of helpful to me that I kind of liked these guys. On, on the, like they weren't really villainous. And they started out with a really, I think, idealistic project, which was to help liberals win office and advance the cause of civil rights. And then they kind of got trapped in their own machine and also in the lie that it really worked. So because they have to, they had to keep selling it. And, you know, the premise is if you can construct an a simulation of the U.S. electorate, and then predict how voters will behave based on characteristics. So they divided the U.S. electorate into 480 possible voter types. They 
purported to be able to tell you how each of those types would respond, you know, on any on any given issue. Well, then you could construct an, a simulation of any population and put it in. They called their invention the people machine. And so they, you know, in a way, very much of the work of Cold War counterinsurgency is com- is conducted this way. The U.S. Department of Defense in the 1960s is headed by Robert McNamara, who had been the CEO of the Ford Motor Company. He was a systems analyst, a big computer guy, and he liked the idea of using computers to run the war. That if you could just enter enough data into uh, the computer about the population and the land and food sources and tanks and the weather, you could predict the course of the war. There's this apparently only vaguely apocryphal story, you know, that there's this giant computer, we kind of return to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in the basement of the Pentagon. And year after year after year, you know, beginning in 61, when the U.S. really, you know, begins to think about increasing its involvement in, in Vietnam, the number of tanks, the weather, the different constituencies of the different religions of the people of Vietnam, the income levels of people in different parts of the countryside. They just keep filling the data in. And then finally, uh, you know, on a Friday, they've put in the last punch cards. And finally, the computer has all the information that it needs. And it's 1967. On Friday, they they let the computer run all weekend and they come come in on Monday morning. And they, they type into the computer, when will the U.S. win the war? And the computer says the U.S. won the war in 1965, <laughs> <laughs> which is the farcical, right? Like yeah. it's cockamamie. Like what? It, yeah. I'm so sorry, but the the people of Vietnam are not responding to your computer model. It's bogus, and it is about your failure to understand local circumstances. You know, it's even you know the guys who go so Simulmatic sets up an office in Saigon in 1965 with huge money from the Department of Defense to do basically public opinion research among Vietnamese peasants in a sense to kind of construct a model of the Vietnamese peasant mind in order to inoculate it against communism. And you just think, I'm sorry, did anybody watch MASH? Like, okay, MASH is later, but like, it's just the the cockamaminess of the psychological warfare element of, of the Vietnam. I mean, it's not funny in that it's also tragedy, but the presumption of it, the crazy arrogance of it. And yet, in a way, I turn on my phone. Information is collected about me to predict what I'm going to do today and what I might be possibly convinced to buy or which campaigns I might be convinced to donate to. That stuff kind of all comes out of that work. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One difference then and now in the story you tell of the 60s is that, as Vietnam War gives us an example, this was American-based technology, and one of the things it might be used to do would be to kind of interfere with other countries. Whereas now the the central fear, and there's a little bit of it, isn't there, around the 1960 election, that one of the things that's so sinister about the thought that Kennedy might have won using his big blinking machine is that this is, isn't this a bit like the kind of mind reading that goes on in communist Russia, but 
the central anxiety today, which is that this technology opens the door to foreign powers interfering in the United States rather than this opens the door to the United States interfering in other countries. That dynamic is different, isn't it, in this yeah. the arc of it, the it, 60s it, it, to now? Yeah, it is different. I mean, a number of the scientists who worked for Simulmatics also did work for the Department of Defense that was not Simulmatics-based, but that was kind of straight Cold War espionage stuff, trying to predict communist insurrections around the world and thwart them by sending targeted messages to particular communities. Simulmatics had a contract that was really controversial and related to a much bigger controversial project was uh, the U.S. government had started something called Project Camelot, which was to conduct computer simulations of the economies of countries in Latin America, you know, in that kind of post-colonial moment to see if they could figure out how to thwart the emergence of communist kind of conversions or sensibilities. And it becomes extremely controversial. The Johnson administration has to terminate Project Camelot because people in Latin America are like, what are you doing? You know, this is like, this is the, the, the nefarious, you know, U.S. involvement in Latin America in those years. Like, it does include this kind of work, right? Saying, here's a way we control the, you know, we don't have to go in there and assassinate leaders or, or you know, aspiring resistance leaders will conduct a computer model of your country's economy and then we'll be able to direct it from our machines. So it is inverted now. Now the U.S. is in a much more defensive posture, right, relative to Russia and to, and to China. When you think about now, and I'm going to ask you in a sec about the election coming up, when you think about now and, and the story you tell in If Then, so what we've just described is kind of there was something behind it, but there was a lot of flim-flam around it, a lot of boosterism and a lot of nonsense. One of the echoes, foreshadowings of now, is there's still a lot of flim-flam and boosterism and nonsense, particularly around AI, but also just generally around data science and information technology. And yet the difference now is that this technology is probably more powerful, more effective, more efficient than we even begin to understand. Back then it was less powerful, less effective, less efficient. And one of the things that really struck me is how weird it is that you can cover up how useless you are with flimflam, and you can cover up how powerful you are with flimflam. You know, the journalists and the the people who produce this puff stuff around it can cover up both ways. I feel today that, in some ways, what's being covered up is the opposite of your story. This machinery doesn't just really work; mm-hmm. it's way more powerful than we appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you think of um, Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, the two classic formulations. We are a company that connects people to the people that they love. Or we know we need to do better. You know, what? You're a company that profits off of people's loneliness and isolation in order to extricate from them intimate details of their lives in order to sell them to third-party corporate like. What are you talking about? We are a company that connects people to people they love. You're destroying democracy. You've destroyed journalism. You're destroying the publishing industry, the world of ideas. What else are you waiting to destroy before you're willing to admit what you're even doing? So, yeah, I I agree. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg is deceiver or self-deceived? I think he's wildly self-deceived. Um I don't know. I mean, what do I know? He's a cartoon character to me. I give no insight into the into the guy at all. I guess I I I suspect that he thinks 
he's done this beautiful thing in the world and some few bad actors have, have made it more complicated or something. I, I, and in a way, partly because he's just comes across still as a little boy who's confused, um, which I think works well for him, <laughs> for instance, before Congress. But there is a way in which the much larger consequence of, you know, at the end of the Cold War, capitalism became unchained, right? Like there's like an unleashing of the worst excesses of capitalism that were in some way in check before that moment. And the kind of go-go 90s celebration of, you know, the greed is good, Friedman nonsense. And then on top of that is the cult of disruptive innovation, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. That's Zuckerberg coming of age. Like he grew up in a moment where, people are bowing on their knees, scraping the ground with their palms of their hands as they kneel before these gods of Silicon Valley who say, I don't care whatever came before. I'm just going to blow things up and you'll see. We'll make a lot of money. <laughs> you know, people thought, well, can I give you more money for that? Can I invest more money in that? Please, sir, can I give you another million dollars to do this to me? Like, what? But that is the world that Zuckerberg grew up in. So I... How we haven't moved past that, I, I confess I do not understand. You said that in the early 1960s, there was an opportunity to steer or regulate this emerging technology to create an ethical framework around it. Partly, I think, because government back then was capable of doing those things and partly because the technology was in its way small enough to be amenable to it. And now it feels much, much harder to imagine that. Both the government capacity to do it is less and the technology is wildly out of control. However, having said all that, if Biden wins, big if, if then Biden wins, even he, I mean, it's not Elizabeth Warren, but even he has talked a pretty good game about the regulation of Silicon Valley. Do you believe it? Do you think he has the capacity? Never mind, does he have the will? Do you think a Democratic president could do that? I do. I think if it puts Warren in his cabinet in a position where she can take that hard line, I, I could see that happening. I mean, the, you know, the problem for the Democrats is is how how indebted they are to the, the financial contributions of the Silicon Valley entrepreneur as a category. You know, but that started a long time ago. That was a deal the Democrats made a long time ago. I think people of principle within the Democratic Party understand that that has come at a tremendous cost to the country. You, you've got a podcast whose ta tagline is Who Killed Truth? You've been writing um, pieces for The New Yorker in there. The End of Democracy series, is that right? Um, uh, the Future of Democracy. The future, sorry, I've, yeah, I've we'd doomed be it. The Future of Democracy. It's me. Sorry, it's me who did The End of Democracy. <laughs> you, I got mixed up. Um, the Future of Democracy. There's an air of pessimism around it, some of it anyway. I just want to, just to finish, ask you really broadly, as we approach this November's election, we don't know what's going to happen. And, I, and when we think about some of the themes we've talked about today, and even I think a lot of people are already getting sort of precognition nightmares about election night mm. and the ways in which, you know, as you said, that the, you know, the TV companies were back in the 60s monopolizing the excitement. You know, newspapers had to compete because TV companies could call it in real time and so on. And it really matters when and how you call it. And I'm sure you have. I've read a lot of pieces about the different timings on election night this time around and what Trump's campaign might do. How scared are you? I haven't slept in probably 
two or three weeks, um, wow. which is my measure. I'm really scared. I'm very scared of a lot of different things. I think like a lot of people, my fear now has taken on a life of its own and becomes difficult to hold in proportion to the size of the threat. Um, and I'm scared about the, the, the consequences of election day and the unraveling afterward that will be necessary, but I'm scared even, even in the best case scenario, I just think there's a lot of chaos ahead and the tools that we need. And I don't mean, you know, bits and bites, but the strength and moral clarity and courage I people are so beaten down. I I I don't know where we get the the ability to forthrightly take on the project of rebuilding American democracy and strengthening liberal governments around the world. I don't I don't see where that reserve of strength lies right now. And of course it does depend on people and the human capacity for, among other things, change. But I think it is true that this technology that works, I mean, Facebook works in, in the way that the 1960s versions didn't, it does have, a, at least within it, the potential for democratic good, as well as it, all of its destructive potential. Even though the slogans are laughable, there are forms of connection that can be made, maybe no longer through a corporation like Facebook, but on various kinds of platforms that do at least have the potential to bring people together. That's one of the huge unanswerable questions. But within this technological space that we're in now, do you think the bad has driven out the good? Because the, you know, the, the digital revolution is both good and bad. It's not either or. But there are times when it feels like the good can't compete with the bad. Do you have any sense that the good can still compete with the bad on this technology using these platforms? I've seen some of the platforms that I think are trying to do really good work, and I think they're incredibly well-intentioned, but they're generally not as sophisticated as the ones that prevail in the marketplace. And I really do believe in regulation. I was reading an article this week in The New Yorker by Sue Halpern about the Trump app, or one of the Trump apps and the way that it works by, you know, rating your contacts and then using geo-referencing of your contacts to rate their contacts and build, you know, this extraordinary collection of data about people to whom then tar micro-targeted messages can be sent, all of which, you know, is going on without any oversight whatsoever and thinking about on election day, when I walked to my neighborhood elementary school to cast my ballot, within two blocks of the polling place, the people holding the signs disappear. They can't stand there because we have regulations about how many feet away from a polling place you can carry a campaign sign. Think about, think about the minute nature of that regulation. And then there's nothing holding back these apps of taking your contacts and sending emails in your name to people soliciting campaign donations. There's just a very wide gap between how we understand that politics should work when we understand it working in the physical world and the utter mysteriousness and anarchy of how it works in the digital world. We have to close that gap. 
I think it takes a lot of voters voting to get to a place where anybody can do the work of closing that gap. And there is that inbuilt problem with democracy, which is, so say Biden wins this time. As you said, one might have thought that the 2016 election was the Manhattan moment where people woke up to the destructive potential of this. But of course, the government, the administration that was elected wasn't going to do anything about it. The administration that might do something about it next time will nonetheless have been elected under these conditions, which greatly diminishes the incentive to do anything about it. I mean, I think it is a real structural challenge of democratic politics that democracies are really bad at reforming themselves structurally because the winners are not incentivized to do it. And I think that may be true this time too. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to add more pessimism, but I mean, at least on that scenario, Trump has lost. But what you say that... that thing that democracy almost needs a bigger jolt than an election to really shake people up. And this technology has not had that kind of, it's not had its equivalent of the financial crisis. It's not had its equivalent of the pandemic yet, but it will. I mean, at some point, I think this technology will fail in a way that is equivalent to those events. You don't want to wish that on any country or any group of people, but absent that, Democracies aren't good at this kind of reform. I mean, I think the closest analogy would be, you know, during the progressive era a century ago when campaign finance reform measures were passed by people who had been elected on money that was somewhat ill-gotten and that they wouldn't be able to get afterward. But what's different with reforming campaign finance and reforming technologies of communication that can aid your campaign is that it's very hard to communicate in other ways in order to seek the reform. Do you know what I mean? Like you can at least publish a bunch of newsletters and broadsides and pamphlets and go to union meetings and hand out leaflets and tell people they should support campaign finance restrictions if it's 1908 or 1911. You Like you can get your message out on a fair field, right? Like, yeah, okay, so the people that want to be able to still make big donations and buy politicians, have more money to fight against you. But if you have enough people, and you're going to always have enough people, because it's going to be always more people, you could you could win that with the numbers. Right? You could enact that democratic reform because you would have the votes to get people elected who would promise to uh, usher in and support campaign finance legislation. But you imagine this conflict, how do you rally support when the means that you have available to communicate with voters are so corrupted and you would need in a kind of principled way to steer clear of them. I I think it's a much bigger bind. It's a kind of trapped inside the machine problem instead of hammering on something from the outside. And it is that thing that the original attempt, the trust busting to take down monopolies, didn't need to use the monopolies to take down the monopolies. Exactly. But this does. That seems to me the difference between now and 100 years ago. Um, yeah. The monopoly yeah. is the monopoly of the means of doing politics. Yeah, and it's and it's much worse now because of the pandemic. I mean, you could say, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to hold meetings in public libraries all over the country and in school buildings in the evening, and we're going to run a kind of nationwide unity campaign or a crusade for American democracy and democratic values. We're going to have face-to-face meetings. We're going to have debates and deliberations. We're going to do, you know, straw polls. We're going to you're going to try to rekindle the institutions of 
just the habits and practices of, of, of talking to people you disagree with and hanging out with them and working through problems together. And we have this whole regime and you could, you know, somehow you could get out of the machine. You could do old fashioned kind of politics, but we can't do that because every, everything has to be through your screen or through a mask or at a six foot distance. And that's not, it's among the few things that I don't blame Facebook for, but it, it does wed us to these devices in, in a wholly different way that makes it very difficult to conduct campaigns for political change outside of them. I mean, you know, you would say the Black Lives Matter movement and its thriving and growth in the past few months is, is a real challenge to that. And, and you'd be right to point to that, right? Like there are ways to rekindle a tradition of protest, even in this moment, but we'll see where that goes, right? Like we haven't kind of seen the legislative reform or the electoral wave that is a, that is a response to that street action. And that street action is different than cultivating institutions of self-governance. So there is hope. And you will sleep soon. I will. I will. <laughs> it's got to come one of these days. David, it's got to come. Jill's new book is called If Then, How One Data Company Invented the Future. It really is highly recommended. This is the time of year for books, and this year all the books have come out at the same time. We try and pick just a few, the very best, to talk to you about. Our panel and our conversations about politics are coming back soon, but we have an extra episode on Sunday, a Sunday supplement. I'm going to be talking to the novelist Robert Harris about his new novel, V2. It's going to be a conversation about weapons, but also about counterfactual history. Next week, in our regular slot, we're talking to the philosopher Michael Sandel, about inequality, meritocracy, and the failures of democracy. And after that, we're going to be talking about the American presidential election. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Okay, I'm so ready. Great. (laughs) Can we just play Guess the Breed, though, for one second? Well, guess the breed. Um, mm, is it a whippet? No, too small. I like big dogs. A Labrador? Bigger. A Ridgeback? Bigger. <laughs> Great Dane. It's half Great Dane and half Newfoundland. Shut the front door, Jill. That's going to be bigger than you. <laughs> well, here's the thing. We have two Great Danes and we've always loved Newfoundlands. And life is really sad. And my husband went out one day to pick up tacos from the taco truck. And he came back and he said, you'll never guess. I met at the taco truck a woman who, with her dog. Her dog is a Newfoundland pregnant by her Great Dane. So I've got one of the puppies. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, I sent you out for tacos. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.